The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, we're going to talk about the fascinating link between our psychological state and our physiology. I'm joined by Dr. Chance Nicholson. Dr. Nicholson joined the Nell Hodgson Rudriff School of Nursing as an assistant professor in August of 2019. He received his PhD from the University of Alabama at Birmingham with a focus on neurophysiological correlations between the vagus nerve's cholinergic pathways, psychiatric conditions, um, including depression and post-traumatic stress and HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders. Dr. Nicholson's research interests and publications center on neurophysiological substrates that form the basis of cognitive behavioral symptoms such as anger, impulsivity, depression, and suicidality, often observed in trauma-based disorders, in particular post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality. Chance, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your work is so interesting because, you know, for so long, mind and body have, you know, not been thought of as communicating with each other. I think increasingly um, people are recognizing the link. And your work so directly ties how different mental states correlate and map to our physiology. I'm going to start by, you know, having you just describe what that looks like when you take a condition, for example, like depression, what are the physiologic correlates of that? And so with, with something like depression that, you know, going, you know, sort of within the avenue of uh, kind of mind and body, when we think about depression, we think about the symptoms that, that go into this acronym SIGI CAPS, right? So right. you've got sleep, you've got um, uh, guilt, you've got energy, you've got uh, pleasure or anhedonia, a motivation. So you have all these things that kind of build in. And and the thing is, is that the, kind of the physiological manifestations of it are not all that dissimilar to what you would see in something like the flu. So I think most people can probably relate to having the flu or knowing someone that does. And if we think about what happens kind of in that first two or three days of that, when if someone came in and asked you know me, for instance, to say, hey, tell me all about your dissertation. Tell me, tell me all the methodology you used. If I have the flu in the first stage... There's, there's really no way that I'm going to be able or want to be able to mobilize, you know, the cognitive resources needed to explain that. I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'll talk to you a different day, right? And the reason for that is is that engagement in the sort of those higher-ordered pathways, things like our neocortex, um, our executive centers, maybe a better way to put that, um, it, it costs. And those things are considered to be somewhat expendable for the body. Um, so, so as odd as it may sound, if we think about our, our brain and body as kind of a, a computer where, you know, our, our body and our sort of basic response systems, our instincts is kind of a hard drive or hardware, thinking is actually kind of a software. So it, it updates, it programs, but it's not, it, it, it's expendable to the actual physical operations of the rest of the body. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a luxury of sorts when we start thinking about abstracting and creativity, right? And so if, if I'm sitting there with, you know, the flu, I'm going to have to override a whole lot to force my body to mobilize blood flow and nutrients to the brain area to do that. Because if people with depression 
people with the flu, they find it cognitively taxing to even think through the steps of maybe even getting out of the bed, getting um, you know their, their clothes ready um, for the shower, all the things you would need, say a towel, soap, shampoo. The whole entire process is so automatic for us, right? It's, we don't even think about it until you're put into this high-stress state, and all of a sudden, every action becomes burdensome. Every single thing you're doing is like, oh my goodness, do I have to take a shower today? Do I have to brush my teeth? I just, don't, I just want to lay in the bed. And basically, you're kind of in this metabolic conservation state. And the thing is, is that in the first few stages of the flu, it's protective. We, we, we don't want to expend a lot of unnecessary energy until the body can figure out maybe what's causing it. You know, it has some recognition of pathogen. It has an entire innate process for dealing with that, right? And what it wants to do is is deal with that so that we know what's causing the stress and then it will begin to kind of open up a bit more kind of liberty in activities, right? Um, and depression is actually just kind of a chronic state of that in which the body is still not certain of where the stress signaling is coming from. So the internal state says something's stressing me out, something stressful. And, and that usually shows up via um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, things that basically tell us that our body is sick or there's a pathogen present. And in things like depression, we have a hard time of getting those things to, to normalize or go back into what, what would probably be commonly called to as homeostasis. Um, and that's considered to be kind of a natural or default state of your body. Um, it's kind of where the body wants to be. So take you know, sort of as a, another example about changes in homeostasis. You're familiar with... Um, uh, the old medication was a hydroxy cut that you would lose weight. I mean, just quickly. <laughs> people the talked commercials about, on TV. Yeah, and they changed the, um, uh, some of the, 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 the chemicals within it so that it's not quite as drastic. But the, when it was initially released, people were losing like 30 pounds in a, in a month or 50, right? But then the complaint was is that as soon as they got off of it, they would gain the weight back very, very quickly, no matter what they ate. Well, the problem was is that the, it was changing your body's natural homeostasis too quickly. So it was treating it basically as trauma because everything your body was doing prior to the hydroxy cut was allocating resources for your weight, you know, at 200, let's say 215 pounds, and it was predicting your activity every single day. And then all of a sudden when that it didn't have the same resistance from the, the fat, the same resistance against the uh, blood vessels to, to pump blood through, it didn't know what to do. So it wants to get back to that predictable state. And that's why if you if you take someone who exercises over six months, they tend to be able to hold the weight off for much longer, even if they do have some cheats on their diet, because they've changed the body's homeostasis. They've moved the bar from where it was to 15. Now the body knows exactly how to allocate resources, blood flow, energy at, at say, now 195 pounds, whereas before it dropped so suddenly, you essentially traumatized your body. And, and it never was able to figure out how to allocate resources um, does that make sense? Well, it does. You know, I want to get back to the analogy between the flu and depression and, and maybe tie that link a little closer. So both of them symptomatically, you know, the body um, kind of retreats. It's in metabolic conservation and it's waiting to get better until it mobilizes the energy mm-hmm. to you know, so, socialize, take a shower and all those things that um, take energy. And the common link between the two is inflammation, right? As you're talking about the pro-inflammatory cytokine. So in our body, the activation of our immune system 
is similar in depression as it is in flu? A lot of the same pro-inflammatory signals are the same. Now, there's, there's nuances when you, be, you the body can tell the difference between, say, a viral pathogen and a bacteria, but that takes a little while for the body to figure out what that is and to kind of, you know, um, use chemical signals to kind of interact with the, the, the bacteria or the virus. And then once it kind of figures out what it is, th- then it can begin to kind of mobilize the specific types of um, uh, kind of... Um, I guess, immune um, um, inflammatory agents to, to deal with the, uh, the specific stress. Does that make sense? Whereas with depression, it, it's going to mirror what looks like kind of a general stress state, which would exist the same for viruses or bacteria, just absent the specific, you know, um, antibody that, that has recognized uh, those, those pathogens. Does that make sense? Well, it does, but stress, so when you have a flu, your body fights the virus, the immune system goes back to homeostasis, back to its regular balance. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an episodic event. With depression, the immune system is chronically right. in an inflammatory state. So what happens over time to the immune system from that chronic stimulation. So, with if you if you want to again oversimpl- let's oversimplify it a bit. So, if we take something like a virus, that's a singular cause. So, the body knows at a certain point within those first three days, because that's usually kind of the the course of its acuity. It figures out in most cases, unless you you know aside from from vulnerable populations perhaps, but. It says, okay, this is the cause. This is the thing that I have to get rid of. So it, so it does. Whereas with depression, it's not exactly clear to the body all the different causes that are contributing to the stress. And, and the thing that makes this is such a, a devastating, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, disorder state, however you want to look at depression, is that the same areas that you might actually need, kind of in the higher ordered centers of your brain, the executive, the abstract, and kind of trying to take control over, well, maybe I shouldn't be interacting with this group of people because they tend to bring more stress than anything. Like maybe these are not people that are good for my overall, uh, you know, well-being, mental health. But those areas are are being downregulated. So it makes it even harder to think about those more abstract social things that could be contributing to your stress. So people, which is the most unpredictable thing in our in our environment, and it really causes your body, it forces your body to focus more on these lower ordered things, which may or may not be actually in um, uh, kind of compromised or uh, are challenged, things like food and water, you know, and it, it begins to move up. But it never is able to determine exactly what the cause of the stress is. And whatever that stress is, presumably, is continuing to exert itself in certain ways. Again, maybe a, a, a bad household environment as a, as a child. You know, maybe it's abuse. Uh, maybe in, in marriages, it's an abusive relationship, verbal, maybe physical. And these things all are not linear. You couldn't just say, hey, this person is doing this bad thing to me, and if I got rid of that thing, then... I w- you know, I wouldn't be depressed. There's a lot of contingencies usually in relationships. Maybe resources depend on this person who is causing this harm. So if I get rid of this person, right, then I'm also going to lose other prediction points for my body, other other areas of resources. Does that make sense? So by taking down something that um, it, it is a primary stressor may not be this linear thing like a virus. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, and, and again, I'm oversimplifying, but let's assume that an abusive person is a virus. You can't just take a person out, right? Right. I mean, you may have those thoughts. I mean, but acting on them is a whole different set of kind of mental processes, right? Because we've all, we could probably at least um, relate to 
being so angry with a person. Oh, I wish I could just kill you. And that, I mean, again, until you move into an action stage, it's relatively meaningless. What it, what the body's basically saying is, is that I am stressed out. I'm looking around my environment. I'm scanning my context. And the person in front of me seems to be the primary source of that stress. If I could get rid of that person, I would feel less stressed, right? But we know that we, I mean, in most cases, we understand that you can't just take a person out. You try to walk away. Maybe that person follows you. Maybe that person is someone who lives in your same household. So there, no matter what strategies you use, you're going to continue to encounter that stress. Does that make sense? And 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 again, now you just have to add multiple layers to that. I mean, economic, uh, people with a lower socioeconomic status that living paycheck to paycheck, that's a stressor that carries on a whole contingency of stressors, right? right. You also have people with they're living in that household that are also dealing with the same stressors. They're bringing that stress into the home because they're stressed out. You're stressed out. Does this make sense? So it becomes more of a compounding, less identifiable way. And the, and the body's defense against that is low-level inflammation, is to protect the body. Because if it didn't, if it didn't have a low level, if it didn't learn about the environment via these pro-inflammatory cytokines, then your body would basically shut down. You, you would not be able to sustain. Um and and this this might because you're in your internal medicine and this may bring a little bit of of, of um, maybe articulation to it. So one of the things that's fascinating about um, kind of chronic inflammatory processes in both men and women is that it tends to be that women are are more protected against chronic inflammatory processes up until a certain point, and that tends to be somewhere around menopausal stage. And what seems to be the case is that women actually have kind of a superhero immune system, truly, that in the immediate stage, they tend to hyper-react to situations to deal with them very, very quickly, which that's microglial. So you're, you're really mobilizing the your, your innate immune system and adaptive immune system to deal with the stressor. The problem is, is that if you can't deal with it, though, that hyper response actually cost over a year's worth of time. It begins to compound. Whereas with men, you tend and, 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 and with that initial is more of a bottom up, you tend to see more of an emotional reaction in the immediate because that's more bottom up. That's more central. It's more tied. Emotions are, are more closely tied to inflammation than cognition, right? I mean, a higher ordered. Men tend to lose their higher ordered cognitive function in the immediate, which is why you see holes being punched in the wall, screaming, yelling, throwing. They actually have a less responsive immune um, in the immediate, but they actually have a, a, a sustained response even if they effectively deal with it. So you tend to see about a 10-year difference in when inflammatory disorders occur. And then in women, once you once menopause state happens, you see a two to three times increase in things like Alzheimer's, rheumatoid arthritis, things that are, are, are oddly enough kind of cognitive centered or at least have this kind of priority cognitive um, exertion. Does that make sense? And that goes back to kind of how how our bodies deal with stress. I think it's fascinating, you know, first of all, that it's somewhat adaptive for us to have this low level stress Mm -hmm. in response to not being able to identify what's triggering anxiety or depression and the chronicity of it. It also then, you know, the corollary then I would wonder is if we know that, you know, we have this low level inflammation, the traditional treatment that we use for anxiety and depression is, you know, for example, put people on medication. What is that doing to inflammation, if anything? And and do we need to maybe approach 
the conditions differently. And, and I think that's kind of what, if you, if, you, if you look at kind of the progression of psychopharmacology, I think you're beginning to get kind of a, a recognition of that. So if you think about um, things like um, TCAs, um, tricyclic antidepressants, they have a lot of properties. And they, they tend to, to hit uh, cholinergic pathways, norepinephrine pathways, serotonergic pathways, some of them histaminergic pathways. And they tend to be some of the most effective for depression and anxiety and also re- uh, related conditions, things like pain, headaches. Um, but the problem is they also come with a lot more side effects because they're, they're hitting a lot more neurotransmitters. So they're doing a lot more to the system. So SSRIs or um, serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors were kind of the response to that. But it only... Um, increases serotonin, makes more available in your body. And we know that by the tryptophan uh, pathway, by um, kind of, well, I don't want to get too much into it, but um, kynurenic and uh, quinolinic pathways are also associated with serotonin and glutamine, which is uh, immune or inflammation. But we know that it's making more of that available, and it is able to communicate with certain um, pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it is able to reduce at least to some extent, the inflammatory process. And the main goal of all of these medications seem to be increasing what we call brain-derived nootrophic factor, which regulates metabolism. So if you if you actually were to be able to control BDNF and give it to someone, you would actually see their glucose or, or uh, be regulated better. Well, the thing is, though, is that pro-inflammatory cytokines actually have, in the in- initial stages, neurogenic properties. They have learning properties because you're, when your inflammatory system goes off, it is trying to teach your body what caused this so that it can maybe avoid it in the future. It, it's a, they, they actually have a uh, what you would call maybe an interoceptive or a somatosensory learning property, and that is also done by BDNF. So the problem is if you take something like an SSRI and you give it to a person and you increase the serotonin, and yet the stressors are not removed, they're not resolved, then all, all the brain is learning is like, hey, even with an increase in serotonin, the stressors remain the same. And guess what? Now you've downregulated some of these serotonin pathways, and you've made it harder to engage them from a, from a, a medicinal standpoint. You're going to have to go up in the dose. And that's why you tend to see people that are in the maybe the most chronic stress, stress states have a differential reaction or response to some of these medications because we haven't changed the cause. All we've changed or tried to change was what the body um, kind of tricked the body into thinking that that the cause had been dealt with, but it hasn't. And the body learns. That's how we ended up depressed or chronically anxious in the first place is because whatever the causative agents were have not necessarily been removed. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And it, let me try and rephrase it, and um, you can tell me if I got it correctly. But So when a person has say, um, anxiety or depression, the immediate is increase in inflammation, so pro-inflammatory right. state. And that is really a way that our body tries to learn, or we release this brain-derived nootrophic factor, which is a factor that you know people have likened to miracle grow in the brain, and that it creates pathways in the brain and new brain cells. So we learn in our bodies quickly trying to solve mm-hmm. Um, why we are in a state of anxiety and depression. So if we put someone on a medication such as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, um, we are bringing down that inflammation, which really was 
an adaptive protective mechanism, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like giving someone with a fever Tylenol. You broke the fever, but the inflammation was how a person was trying to heal from the infection. Mm -hmm. So we're, in a way, treating the response that the body's naturally having, and we're almost stripping the body of its learning ability and so we raise the dose of medication thinking the person hasn't responded to the medication, but all we've really done is made it harder for their body. In, in many cases, yes. And, and there are, of course, individuals who it, it simply is kind of just a neurochemical depletion, something like serotonin, that you could provide an SSRI and things recalibrate. The system kind of uh, reboots. And, and that's fine because it wasn't so much that there is an ongoing stress or stressors in the environment as much as was there may have been a bolus of stress and then their body just could not manufacture the the you know uh, the serotonin we'll say in this case to kind of reboot so you give ssris the person feels much better everything is fine because whatever the stressors were either not no longer hitting that same sort of endured stress you know st- uh, threshold but that's often not what we tend those people tend to not come to the clinic as often, right? The ones that we're probably most concerned about are the ones that continue to have these um, kind of chronic inflammatory conditions, things like fibromyalgia, things like chronic pain, rheumatoid arthritis, and also the accompanying possibly uh, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, right? The ones that have this unremitting kind of uh, uh, kind of chronicity of these things. And so, so yes, I mean, the, the whole idea is that the, the body, all right, so take this for example. If I and, and this is the uh, very extreme case, but let's say that I'm in the woods and this is a, a, a an area that I'm unfamiliar with, and a bear pops out, say in a Superman T-shirt, right? Well, that would be very unusual if I see a Superman T-shirt and, and, and it being on a bear. On top of that, now my my instinct should be to just either run, you know, because I'm, I can't go hand to hand with a bear, right? So let's assume it's just me and them. Maybe I get away, maybe I don't. Maybe there's an instinct to play dead. That doesn't matter. But my instinct is to get away to do something. Well. If I end up maybe saying, um, put someone on, let's say, benzodiazepines, and I'm walking into the woods, and the bear comes out in this T-shirt, I'm going to be a lot slower to kind of react to that, right? But really, the response I needed was to run. It wasn't to say, oh, this is a harmless bear. It's wearing a T-shirt. This can't be. This has to be a funny bear. It's someone in a costume. The, the brain doesn't have time to make that distinction. It doesn't. It needs to get away. And then once you're well away from the stressor, you can look back and say, man, I might not should have ran because if I was wearing a T-shirt, it was probably a friend of, or a buddy of mine that, that I knew was kind of in the woods. But in the moment, you can't make that distinction. So there's an aftermath where your brain learns from that stressor where the BDNF and the inflammation kind of helps once, once you kind of get into the anti-inflammatory mode, the kind of parasympathetic mode. Then you can start kind of processing. And if you want to think about if we're going to kind of frame it into a mental health um, condition, let's look at PTSD. And if we think about uh, military vets where this event is caused by, let's say, one event, which is kind of a that's kind of a wrong way of thinking about it, because going into, say, war or a battle itself has been priming your sympathetic nervous system for a while before you ran into a combatant, more than likely. So your stress is, I mean, your system's already primed. Well, then this major event happens, say, an IED or, you know some catastrophic thing occurs. Well, the thing is, is that in that moment, the body has to process really quickly everything that happened because it's the most salient thing in the environment. This is the thing that's causing all of this danger. Well, the problem is I don't have time in that moment to say, well, you know, the smell 
is not really that important to what just happened. That would not have, have cued me into an IED. Um, that the sound of a vehicle, you know,'s engine but probably had nothing to do with it. My, my having heard that has nothing to do with my running over the IED, just that I was in a, in a, in a vehicle, right? But it takes in all of this information and it makes every single thing important, everything. And that makes it very difficult for someone with PTSD as they're moving through because the brain still has yet to go through and parse out all the different things in that environment that were unrelated to the trauma. So instead, it says everything's important. So now gasoline smells trigger me. Loud sounds, fireworks, anything that would be closely related to that trauma is now just being thrown into the bucket of things to respond to. And if you if you go from it from kind of a medical standpoint, it's why that, that loading someone with, say, maybe a beta blocker or opioids prior to a, a, a traumatic event, if you, could, if you could predict it, it slows down the time scale in the body. And that's the reason why it's protective against things like PTSD is because it's slowing how the brain is processing information. And the trade-off is you're not getting away from the danger any faster. You're actually going to probably be in the area for a longer amount of time because of reaction time. But your brain is able to process and figure out what was the most important thing, what is the thing that I, I should be avoiding. And if you, if you if, again, going towards predictability, our brain is an extreme, extreme prediction machine. That's why we like reruns when we're stressed out. Um, is that people are the most unpredictable things. So when you when you talk about someone with PTSD, even with depression or anxiety, th- the thing in the environment that's most likely to cause stress, that's most likely to harm you, is probably people relative to you being in a room that has maybe a chair in it. And the, and the only other thing in the room is another person. So your body is actually telling, you know, uh, the internal signals are actually telling the brain what to see. I mean, I'm now ignoring the chair. I'm now looking at the person across from me. And every expression you make if my, if my internal signal says stress, 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 I'm going to find stress in your face. Every smirk, every smile I'm going to consider to be neutral. Every frown I'm going to interpret as a threat because something in my internal signal says something's wrong, something's stressful. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. Fix it. So now I'm focusing on every little thing that the, you know, the perceived stress in my environment is doing so that I can justify my reaction, whether that's yelling at you, whether that's running out of the room anger, whatever it may be, I am now making my internal signals match my external. So you weren't an enemy. My internal said there was one. Now you are. Everything makes sense. Now I'm at a homeostasis. Now this makes sense. You, you ask persons that, that have been in war that have severe PTSD, one of the first things they'll tell you is, I want to go back to war. Just put me over there. Why? Because the internal signals would make sense if you were at war. The inter- because it would make sense for you to be stressed out. It would make sense to be looking around everywhere because you are under a threat. But if you're at home with your family who, who that you, you've known for a long time that's not threatening, it doesn't make sense to, to think of them as threats. You, so you have competing higher order processes. Does that make sense? It does. So if your body is, you know, in a certain state of awareness or response, um, say with PTSD if you've been at war and now you are back in civilian life and medications are really slowing your response in order to help you have more time to differentiate what they sh- you know you should truly be thinking of as a right. threat if we say okay the underlying cause is that there's a mismatch between your state and your current environment yeah. What are ways then to really get at that cause and get that match lined up again? So say if a person's under a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety where they are in a very adaptive way 
changing their response appropriate to their environment. Right. And so if we if we think of the brain kind of in Bayesian terms, which is a kind of a statistical approach, um, Bayes originated this, um, and it, it kind of looks at the brain as a prediction machine and that its entire goal is to reduce prediction error. So everything that we do is actually based on a prediction that the brain is making about the next second, that everything that's going to happen in the future, right? And there's a mismatch between me being in an environment that the external input is calm, again, around people that I I really care about, um, but my internal signal is saying something different. Well, there's a larger override kind of from a bottom up. It's a stronger pathway. And the thing is, is that in those situations, again, as we talked about before, kind of in an inflammatory state, you begin to remove blood flow from the higher ordered areas. And basically, you're, you're interrupting kind of the ascending pathway to, to say, nope, that's a bad prediction. You're safe. It never makes that loop. It bypasses our executive network. It bypasses our prefrontal cortex. And it basically defaults to a stress response because that's the thing that's most protective. That's the thing that um, th- th- it's more costly for me not t- to to um, to notice that there is a threat versus me to pretending that there's not one. My, my survival, you know, in its most purest terms, the odds are much better than me assume a, a threat. So how do we get that back online? Well, the very interesting thing is, is that, and we talk about mind and body, and I'll, I'll throw this at you. Were you aware that the GI system had uh, uh, independent pacemakers that were independent of CNS function? That even though that it is dependent to, to basically have its full functionality, but if you disconnected the GI system from the CNS, it could still do things. There is still a pacemaker. So still peripheral things that it does. The heart is actually kind of the same. It, it, it has two different pacemakers, one's, one that's CNS-oriented and one that's peripherally oriented. And the reason why I bring that up is, is that there's one major system that we always talk about when we, when we talk about bringing kind of stress into focus or trying to kind of coordinate or create a coherence between kind of bottom-up, top-down process, and that's the respiratory center. So what happens if we cut the respiratory center off from the CNS? That's it, right? I mean, you, it, right. it is fully dependent. So the respiratory center actually is a gateway to your GI system. It's a gateway to your cardiovascular system. So that's one way in which we're able to kind of control at least or, or, or remodulate maybe the environment that we're seeing. That's why deep breaths, when people do that, because when you breathe in sympathetic, which does what? It focuses your attention. And then you breathe out, and that's parasympathetic. Oh, so now I'm looking at one thing. Oh, it's fine. Breathe in. Oh, I'm looking at this thing. Breathe out. It's fine. It is literally the gateway for our body. So that is one of the things that kind of can, can slow our, our breathing, it can kind of engage kind of that parasympathetic. And we call that interoceptive awareness. It's knowing kind of how fast your heart is beating, right? Because if I'm running away from a bear, does it matter if I'm running, say, okay, my heart's beating 188 beats per minute. It makes no difference to me in that moment that that's occurring, right? It, it should be doing that. But our brain, because it's so automatic, our heart begins to beat very, very fast. We have no idea why. And we ignore it because it's a default response because we're chronically stressed. So we have to bring our attention back to it to say, wait, 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 wait. Let me count my breaths. Let me count my heartbeats. Let, let me really engage this environment in a more contextual way. Um, and that's, again, part of where the access is. And, and I don't think, and this is a bit of an aside, I don't... I think that that's part of the reason why, A, persons with PTSD experience a much higher rate of sleep apnea than virtually almost anyone is because if I'm my – brain, my brain and body is already coordinated towards more of a sympathetic breathing cycle, shorter breaths, because 
that's sympathetically engaged. Every time I engage my parasympathetic, guess what? I'm now vulnerable. So in, so with sleep apnea, as you begin to go down into your sleep cycles and your system begins to shut off, the body catches you. It wakes you up because it will not allow you to go into that 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 more threat vulnerable state, right? Right. People with um, that with suicidality, there there's a there's an unusual phenomenon where if you live in higher climates, that there's a higher rate of suicidality. There's also a breathlessness component that is higher in persons with suicidality, meaning that there is some uh, disconnection or lack of coherence between the breathing registration and coordinating the rest of your body, which is which is responsible for your recognizing yourself kind of in, in, in space, being right. a person. And th- this concept of having breathing being the gateway to really controlling um, the things that we feel when we're under stress. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, you're, you may get butterflies in the stomach. You're saying the GI system has... Um, you know, it's a pacemaker, if you will, and the heart does as well. Um, you know, I... I want to really get more into that. I think what we'll do is, you know, we'd love to invite you back to focus on the way we can use our awareness, our interior receptive system, and use that awareness through our body to control the mind. Um, so it's been great talking about how the mind and the body are connected, um, you know, through these inflammatory pathways and how we are really built to compensate and defend and protect. Um, and I would you know, love to you know, now have a subsequent episode talking about how we can use that information into ways we can control and modulate our thoughts through our body, which is really the corollary. Sure. So, um, so uh, you know, I want to thank you for all this incredible information. This has just been fascinating, and I want to continue our conversation. And um, and we will certainly have you back for a part two. Okay. Thank okay. you so much. I really appreciate yeah, this. Yeah, thank was fun. you so much. This is um, just great information, and appreciate all that you shared with us today. Thank you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.